You are the God who is high and exalted and lifted up. You are the God who is sovereign over all the world, over all the universe, over everything. We look to you, Almighty God, that you would bless us, that you would attend your word. And as Isaiah the prophet says, such a word will not return to you void and will accomplish all of your will. We so pray that by the preaching of the word there would be the power of the spirit that attends unto it, by the hearing of the word that there would be the power of the spirit that attends unto it, and that we would beneficially receive your word completely and wholly this morning as we finish thinking about true biblical reformation and how it permeates all the various areas of our life, how we are to redeem the time and taking it upon every moment and here as we guard our hearts to continue in it all the days of our life. We ask, O God, for your attendance. The Lord Jesus would send his spirit in power and be with us as we look to your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us read Proverbs chapter 4, and I want to read verses 20 to 27, and we're going to focus in on one particular verse. But let's read 4, 20 to 27 together. My son, give attention to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Do not let them depart from your eyes. Keep them in the midst of your heart, for they are life to those who find them and health all their flesh. Keep your heart with diligence, for out of it springs the issues of life. Put away from you a deceitful mouth, and put perverse lips far from you. Let your eyes look straight ahead, and your eyelids look right before you. Ponder the path of your feet, and let all your ways be established. Do not turn to the right or to the left. Remove your foot from evil. We are going to concentrate on Proverbs 4.23, which is, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it springs the issues of life. In dealing with true biblical reformation, we have covered quite a bit of ground. We covered what biblical reformation is, and we have to be reminded about what Reformation is all about. If you remember, true biblical Reformation is only accomplished through the Word of God. It is only accomplished through God's Word, through the Scriptures themselves, made up of the Old and New Testaments, and, and nothing else can affect that. The Spirit of God utilizes the Word of God to change us, to sanctify His church. True biblical Reformation is always joined to a solemn resolve to continue to follow God's Word. So remember... Josiah stood with the people before the temple as he stood by the pillar. And they made a covenant together, a solemn vow before God to keep it. And true biblical reformation is always a thorough reform. It is always one that reaches into the extents surrounding every area of life. That which envelops and involves the renewed Christian mind, striving to become all that Christ desires us to be. Reformation reaches to all of those areas, and we must know the various areas that Reformation should permeate. Reformation should permeate the church. It should permeate worship in the church. 
It should permeate the officers of the church and the congregation of the church. It should permeate the home, personal devotions, desire to set yourself before God, bowing before him daily to worship him in your own personal devotions. It permeates the federal husband and his responsibility over his home, permeates the industrious wife, permeates parents and children. It even permeates the workplace, or should permeate the workplace, and all of society between the relationship that employers and employees have. Reformation should hit every sphere and every area of life. And in remembering that that's the case, and remembering that it's only through the word that this happens, we should make the most of every opportunity that is allotted to us to reform ourselves by the word. But we also have to have a practical outworking as to how all these things come to pass. And that practical outworking will only be accomplished by the armor of the word of God kept safe in the heart and guarded. Remember, that was Israel's downfall. Even after they made a solemn vow, not but 20, 30, 40 years later, one generation, Israel had fallen back into apostasy. And all of the idols had popped up again. Proverbs 4.23 is an excellent verse to remind us that if biblical reformation is going to happen, if biblical reformation is going to be part of our repertoire as Christians, then we must guard our hearts with all diligence, keep our hearts with all keeping. Proverbs 4.23 is set in the greater context of the admonition of keeping to the right path. The children are being instructed. The sons and daughters are being instructed. And one can resolve to walk a certain path and have good intentions, but practically there is a way of going about making those resolutions come to pass. You can have good intentions of going to a certain place or doing a certain thing or accomplishing a certain action, but if it actually doesn't come to pass... If you don't engage in it or utilize the right means that it would be accomplished, it won't ever happen. So Proverbs 4, verses 10 to 27, as we read, envelop the larger context of various anatomical exhortations. There is a theology of walking here in which I think, when Paul writes Ephesians as we've been looking at, that a theology of walking throughout the book of Proverbs and the different paths that someone might take. Paul was also thinking in the same way, and that's why he, in Ephesians, and the way that he set that up, had a theology of walking, as we remember the last time we talked about all the different ways we can walk, not as the Gentiles, but be imitators of God, and walking circumspectly. Well, there's a theology of walking that's set upon a right path. And you have to be on the right path to walk rightly. And these various anatomical exhortations also that you would have mastery over your entire body. The eyes are mentioned. In verse 21 and 25, you have to see where you're going. The mouth is mentioned in verse 24. The feet are mentioned in verse 26 and 27. And the right path is seen and walked, but only by determination. And the determination that it takes place, because one path is light and the other path is darkness. And thus, the Christian, the one who wants to be wise, 
according to this book of wisdom, Proverbs 4.23, sets right in the middle of all of this that it's crucial to take the right path. For wherever your heart is, the body will follow. The feet will follow, and the mouth will follow, and the eyes will follow, and every other part will follow. It will follow the heart. The heart is important because the heart will determine which path the body will take. And so Proverbs 4.23 tells us to keep, to keep the heart. And the Hebrew word here means to guard, like a guard would guard over a prisoner. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. But guard from danger. Guard in the idea to observe it always. To guard with fidelity or purity. To keep under lock and key. And it's an imperative. So this is a command. We are to keep the heart. And so he says the heart. So what does he mean by the heart? Well, the heart throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament in different ways means the inner man or the soul of a man, the mind, the will, the understanding, the inclination, the resolution, the determination of your will. That's your soul setting itself on a particular path. The heart is the center or seat of man's being. It's the center of man. The heart knows things. Proverbs 14.10 The heart knows its own bitterness. It knows things. The heart has wisdom. Proverbs 14.33 Wisdom rests in the heart of him who has understanding. The heart is also the seat of corruption as a result of the fall. Jeremiah 17.9 The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The heart thinks. Matthew 15, 19. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts. Even out of the heart is the very seat of believing. Believing the truth. Romans 10, 10. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness. So it is the center of resolve in the verse that we're looking at. The center spot where everything else comes out. And thus Jesus the great expositor, the Old Testament, Matthew 6.21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. As the heart is either pure or wicked, so the whole course of a man's life will either be pure or wicked. What path is he walking? So we are to keep our heart, and the proverb says, with all diligence, Diligence, the place of confinement. Now, this is kind of a strange way that our English translations actually translate the verse. With all diligence isn't necessarily the best translation. Literally, this phrase, keep your heart with all diligence, translates as keep your heart with all keeping. We are to keep it. It's a double repetition. It's an imperative that repeats itself. And this place of all diligence or this place of keeping is like the prison. It's the guard over the jail. It's a guard post. It's a guard house. So we are to be looking at our heart in such a way as a guard watches the prisoner. 
and he keeps the prisoner in jail, so the Christian should also as well keep or guard the heart with a diligence or resolve in the same way as you would confine a criminal. If you think about it, lockdown in a maximum security prison is the idea. What kind of thought, I mean, think about it, what kind of thought goes into a maximum security prison from the way that they do their laundry or eat their food to the way that they house each one of the criminals to the time that they get up to the time that they go to bed? They are constantly under lock and key and they are constantly in this, quote, foolproof facility so that they are guarded and observed 24 hours a day all of the time, there are guards inside, there are guards outside. There are guards that hold guns, there are guards that watch them on TV monitors. This is the idea that Proverbs is giving. The guarding of the heart in this way, in which constantly and forever it is kept with all diligence, at no time does the maximum security prison, all of the guards suddenly leave and go out for a coffee break or a luncheon for two or three hours while they leave the prisoners alone. It will never happen. They will always be under lock and key. And so, it says that the heart is to be kept in that way, and it's to be kept with all keeping, because out of it, everything comes. The entire path, the entire walking of the Christian life, or any life for that matter, because Proverbs is simply saying, you can either be on the right path or the wrong path. But out of it springs the issues of life. Out of the heart comes forth everything that pertains to a man's path. All things regarding the manner and the way of life. So the exhortation is, is that the heart should be kept in a certain way. And if it's not kept, if it's not guarded, then a wrong path will be taken. And where your treasure is, so there your heart will be. Whatsoever you find to be most important, that is where you will walk. Now, this, in particular, is exceedingly akin and important and relevant to true biblical reformation because the Christian must continually and always, without ceasing, protect his heart from that which may corrupt it. Because even though we might know all of these things about true biblical reformation, that it's done by the word, that it's done by a solemn vow, that it's uh, done constantly and thoroughly, though we know all of these things, that we know this to permeate every area of life, and that would redeem the time and make the most of every moment, if we don't protect our heart, true biblical reformation will become corrupted, and our heart will become more loose. And as a result of it becoming more loose, more and more and more, just like the frog in the pot of water that slowly is turned up to boil, will get hot, and hot and hot until the frog boils to death and he dies and doesn't even know what happened. For true biblical reformation to take place, the Christian must continually protect his heart from that which may corrupt it. You might ask yourself, what's worth protecting? What is worth protecting in this life? Think about the different things that people protect. Proverbs says that guarding the heart or protecting the heart is set over the entire life of the Christian because every issue of life comes out of it. Well, think about the things that people protect. Banks have elaborate safes to protect money. That they protect. Homes have alarm systems to protect valuables. 
Even people have insurance policies to protect their families. We have to ask the question, what protects the heart? What protects the heart? Christians are commanded to protect the heart with all diligence, like a guard, like a prisoner. But how is that done? How is walking the right path accomplished? Well, it brings us full circle. It brings us back to the first sermon in this series on the Word. The true biblical reformation can only happen through the Word. That is why the heart and the Word are so closely knit together in every area of whether it be Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, or Malachi, or Matthew, or wheresoever, where the heart is, if it's surrounded by the Word, you'll be on the right path. But if the word is not in your heart, then you'll be on the wrong path. Psalm 119.11 Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. That's a good summary of what Proverbs is trying to explain. Ephesians 5.17 Therefore do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Right? Redeeming the time because the days are evil is understanding the will of the Lord. Walking rightly is linked to knowing God's will and God's word. John Flavel says in his book, A Saint Indeed, the keeping and right managing of the heart in every condition is the great business of a Christian's life. That's what the Christian is always about, keeping his heart. Holding fast to the word and its memorization and incorporation is what sets the Christian on the rock of Christ. Christ is the living Logos. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word is with God. The Word was God. Christ himself is the living Word. And the Word of God, then, is hiding Christ in the heart for protection against the onslaught of the world, the flesh, and the devil, which always come against us. So if we don't have the Word in our heart, if we are not doing what the psalmist says and hiding that Word in our heart, then the reverse of that is that we will sin against the Lord. It is the word that helps us. And it is the word that is always under attack by the enemy. God's word is always under attack. Think about it right from the very beginning. Genesis 3.1 Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And what did he do? He set up an army against Adam and Eve and shot them with arrows and spears and bullets. No. And he said to the woman... Has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? What he did was he brought doubt upon God's word. And he came against God's truthfulness and his faithfulness and his veracity. He came against the word of God. When we are accused, Zechariah 3.1, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to do what? Oppose him oppose what God had said concerning Joshua. And that's how God defeats Satan in that moment. He says, no, no, no. Put on a clean robe. Put on a clean turban. He is clean in my sight. God's word, God's judgment, God's commandments, God's precepts, God's instruction always wins. And yet Satan desires to thwart that. To come against the word. 2 Corinthians 11.14 And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Why? 
So Revelation 2.9, but are a synagogue of Satan. Synagogues are the place where people are taught, or supposedly taught, the truth. And yet here is Satan who comes, who transforms himself as an angel of light to deceive. You think it's the light of the word, and it's not, but really a synagogue of Satan. If the word of God is said in the heart of a Christian, it will be a place of war, and the devil will come against it, and the world will come against it, and your flesh will come against it. God's word is always under attack. And if God's word is the deciding factor for true biblical reformation, then guarding the heart is not very easy or not going to be very easy. Because we're going to have to be constant at that work. The heart must be set on that work constantly. And it should be guarded by principle alone. Just the very principle that it should be guarded places us in the position where at every moment, every day, every second, redeeming the time, we should be guarding our hearts in everything. Psalm 4.4 4, Be angry and do not sin. Meditate within your heart on your bed and be still. Even into the night hours, we are guarding our heart, meditating within our heart. Psalm 77.6 I call to remembrance my song in the night. I meditate within my heart. And my spirit makes diligent search. Self-examination. Following what God would have us do according to his will. We meditate and think about all the various providences that could befall us and know how we should react at each one of those providences, no matter what providence comes our way. Because guarding our heart is not something that we ease up on just because we have a prosperous time or an adverse time. It's something that we do all of the time, in temptation or out of temptation, in prosperity, out of prosperity, following a joyous time in the Lord or following not such a joyous time in the Lord. It should be guarded because providences are never the same. And so if it was that it was we were just happy all the time, and after we reached that point of happiness, we'd never be unhappy, we'd never have any temptations, we'd never have any uh, fights with the world flesh or the devil. If it came to the point where we just went to a certain spot and we were safe at that spot, it might be a little different. But we're not in that spot, especially in this world. We have all sorts of things that we have to contend with. Take, for instance, prosperity and adversity. In Psalm 62, verse 10, it says, If riches increase, do not set your heart on them. Your heart can lead you astray if it's not guarded well. Or even in times of adversity, when you're not rich. Proverbs 24, 10. If you faint in the day of adversity, your heart is weak. Our heart is to be guarded and instead have a consistency about it. Ecclesiastes 7.14 speaks to prosperity or adversity in this way. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. But in the day of adversity, consider. Surely God has appointed the one as well as the other, so that man can find out nothing that will come after. God sets all of those things up. He sets every providence that we encounter before us. And yet... It's almost as if it's a test every time. What will you do in this situation? What will you do in that situation? Have you guarded your heart in such a way that no matter what comes your way, you will pass the test? We should guard our hearts. Our hearts receive temptations of all kinds. And our hearts are the culprits when we fall into temptation. Acts 5.3, Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? To lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price for the land of yourself. In Hosea 13, 6, when they had pasture, they were filled. This is God speaking. They were filled 
and their heart was exalted, therefore they forgot me. We have to stand against the very possibility of falling away. We have to stand guard against the very possibility of being tempted. Nehemiah 4.18, if we could use this as an analogy, every one of the builders had his sword girded at his side as he built. The sword and the trowel, so to speak. As they were building the building, they had the trowel in one hand and the sword on the other. Because the enemies of God would come and might attack. They were ready on the one hand, guarding everything that they were doing, and yet on the other hand, they were building. In that way, the analogy fits that we are redeeming the time to bring forth true biblical reformation, yet at the same time, we are guarding our heart that we might not sin against God. At what point can a Christian stop keeping his heart? Well, at no time. Never. There is hardship all around us, in this fallen world, and because we live in this fallen world, we are at no time at liberty to stop keeping our heart. Out of our heart will come our very witness, and that witness must be constant. We are like sermons. We are like testimonies before people. The Christian witness and testimony before men will be demonstrated by the holiness of our heart, or the lack of it. An unkept bed is distinguishable from a kept bed. If the heart isn't kept, it will lack grace. If the heart isn't kept, it will lack giftedness with others. If the heart is not kept, it will lack usefulness in the kingdom. If the heart isn't kept, it will even come right down to the very assurance that you might have or have not. You might even lack assurance of salvation as a result of not keeping your heart because you'll be bombarded by the wiles of the devil and the things of the world and the deceitfulness of your flesh. What kind of witness would you have demonstrated in that regard answers the question as to to how one keeps or not keeps his heart diligently for our Lord Jesus Christ. So we might ask this question, what is the best way that a Christian might keep diligently his heart? In thinking about that, there are probably all sorts of practical things that we could talk about. There are practical things like prayer, or reading the scriptures, or attending church, or fellowship with the saints, or all of these things. But really, if you get down right to the very heart of the matter, coming to a greater knowledge of God is the best remedy for keeping the heart. And it is the best remedy against an unguarded heart. Many times there seems to be intricate lessons to learn from various scriptures on various subjects for our edification. Those intricate outlines that sometimes seem to exhaust the subject can be very edifying in some of the best sermonizing that's ever done. Going into the intricate details of what prayer is that's eminently practical. But honestly, the best remedy for a slack heart is simply to know Christ more intimately and God more exhaustively. Let me give you an example. The most neglected topic in theology, in my estimation, is the doctrine of God. 
And that is why most of the heresy that ruins the church falls around a misapprehension of who God is and what he's like. Every heresy throughout the history of the church always revolves around God or the lack of understanding who God is. A Christological heresy or a Trinitarian heresy are always at the heart of heresy. Even if you look through the early parts of the church, the first few hundred years, you always have people messing up the doctrine of God. And even nowadays, in looking at things like the Auburn Avenue theology and the Federal Vision theology and these different guys out there with the new perspectives on Paul, they are messing up the doctrine of God, substituting covenant faithfulness for his attributes and character. And in doing so, that, in my estimation, is what most of the heresy that ruins the church comes from. How would the Christian act differently about the nature of his heart, about sanctification, or the lack of sanctification, if he were more intimately aware of, just say, the presence of God, or the holiness of God, or the majestic character of God in their life? How different would they act? Guarding the heart is hard. But imagine how much more solemn it would be and easier it would be if Christians had a more intimate knowledge of Christ's real presence with them. Remember, God is constantly recording, so to speak, your thoughts, your actions, your feelings, your desires, your intents. A hearty doctrine of God, a hearty theology proper, would help us realize that we are constantly and forever under a constant divine scrutiny. And if we remembered that, right before our sin, right before we would give in to that temptation, right before that we would blow up, right before that we would become depressed, right before that we would sin in any way, that our heart would be more betterly guarded. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. The psalmist knew, no doubt, that God was able to do that. Would not God search this out? For he knows the secrets of the heart. God knows everything that you're thinking. Jeremiah 17.10 I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind. Even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. And Jesus even says in Matthew 12.36-37 But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give an account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Might God's people know their hearts as well as God knows their hearts? That we might have a better understanding of who God is and what he does surrounding us, knowing our thoughts and actions and feelings and desires and intents and searching our hearts, and knowing that on the day of judgment everything is going to be known, how would that utterly change the path that we walk? Christ's realized presence would make all the difference in keeping the heart faithfully, in doing it faithfully. Because every time someone comes into the presence of Christ, sin is, or in the terms of going and sinning, is the last thing on their mind. Every time somebody has a encounter with God throughout the scriptures, it's not this my buddy is Jesus. 
it's he falls down on his face and realizes the wickedness of his heart and the utter holiness of who God is. Luke 5, 8. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord, as Peter cowered in the back of the fishing boat. What did Jesus do? They caught some fish. Peter, though, understood the doctrine of God. God's sovereignty and his power to be able to take every one of those fish and direct them into the nets. Peter was cowering in the back of the boat, knowing that Christ was the Lord God and he was wicked. Revelation 1.7, John says, And when I saw him, I wrapped my arm around his shoulder and we began to sing together these wonderful songs of how much he is my buddy. Well, that's not what John did. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. Ezekiel 1.28, when the prophet encounters God, this was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. So when I saw it, I fell on my face. Isaiah, in the classic passage in Isaiah 6, when he encounters the living God and the angels crying out that he's holy, what does Isaiah say? I am unclean. And I live among the people that are unclean. In relationship to who God is, it would profoundly affect the keeping of our heart and the remembrance that we are to be holy before him. Proverbs 4.23, in keeping the heart diligently, is not difficult to apply to our lives and to see how we can utilize it throughout every day constantly. Not only do we redeem the time, but we have to guard our heart. And we have to guard our heart constantly. It is the constant business of our life. Never stopping. Guarding our heart first glorifies God in our confirmation of Christ's image continually. We have to continually do that. Otherwise, everything that we think will happen with true biblical reformation will never come to pass. We have to keep ourselves from sin. If you live after the flesh, you'll die. But if through the Spirit you mortify the deeds of the body, you'll live. It's a theology of walking there. Colossians 3.5 Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. John 7.38 He who believes in me, as the Scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water, or the lack thereof. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4, The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That is what should be shining out of our hearts. We have to walk a certain way. We have to guard our hearts continually, because we're always moving in one direction or another. We're either moving forward unto sanctification or backwards into apostasy. One or the other. We're either moving forward or backwards. There's no neutral. There's no coasting. We're either fighting the world, the flesh, and the devil, or we're not. As in Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, when he was looking at the painting of the man who uh, was besieging the castle, the men who had the pieces of paper would sign your name to have the chance to go in and, and own the castle. But through war, who would sign their name? Who would come? Who would do it? And it was silent. And 
Christian, as he watches this, was somewhat perplexed that no one would go forward. And suddenly a man came forward, said, I'll do it, signed his name, picked up a sword, and besieged the castle by himself. That's the kind of guarding that we're talking about. It's active, and it's imperative that we do it. It's a war that we are in. If God's word is in our hearts, then it's a war that we're fighting constantly. And holiness is essential to success. Thus, that is why we must understand and know God all the more. If our minds are not wrapped around the concept of separation from the world and a separation and cleaving to the holy God, then guarding the heart or watching over it will make even little sense to us. Because that's our motivating factor. Being more like Christ. Thus, we must know the word. And knowledge of the word is essential to success if we guard our hearts continually. One of my favorite theologians to read is Francis Turretin. And Turretin was one of the best systematicians that put together a systematic theology of the scriptures that really ever lived. And he was one of the successors in Geneva. Calvin, Beza, Turretin. These were all men who took Geneva to its height. John Knox, when he visited while Calvin was there, said it was like heaven on earth. And Turretin, when he wrote his systematic theology, which is now only used basically in seminaries for people who are studying to be scholars or, or pastors, and most of the time people who are reading Turretin don't like to read him because he's so difficult, Turretin actually wrote his theology to be a catechism for laymen in Geneva. So you would imagine how theologically powerful the people in that city were. Turretin, his whole life served God. His whole life he preached. His whole life he had a tender heart to see the lost converted and the converted sanctified. And that he had a son and his son succeeded him. And within a very short time, the entire city of Geneva went into apostasy. Because his son didn't keep his heart. Because his son didn't know the word. Because his son wasn't converted and utterly brought the city to ruin. There's only two paths. The righteous path or the wicked path. If we desire true biblical reformation in our home, in our work, in our church, in our society, wheresoever, then guarding our heart and keeping our hearts in the orthodoxy of the word of God is going to be essential. People always say doctrine isn't important or sometimes too much doctrine is too much. But becoming more like Christ is only accomplished through the word and we can never become enough like Christ in this world, in this life. Corrupt the word or corrupt the use of the word and you will corrupt everything else around it. That's why Josiah, what did he do when he read the law for the first time? He tore his clothes because he knew they had not been doing it. And he knew that they needed to. Without keeping our hearts safe, they will be restless to wander. Augustine has that famous line from his confession. The soul is restless until it finds its rest in thee. And even after it finds its rest in thee, you have to guard it. 
that it might continually rest in him. Otherwise, it will become restless again. How will the heart or soul ever be ready for sanctification without its keeping? How will it ever endure a time of trial or mission if it's not properly kept? How will it be constant in personal or family devotions or church attendance or the use of personal gifts for the edification of the body and all the other like sanctifying works that are essential to keeping the heart rightly? How will it do those things? God will not mold clay that is not set on the potter's wheel. Won't do it. It has to be set there, ready, guarded. All the success of true biblical reformation rests on whether or not the heart is set on the word of God and on Christ. You remember Jesus and everything that he did, barring none, did everything and fought every battle through the power of the word of God. Even this, the temptations of the devil, it is written. He would always come back to the word. He knows that that in and of itself will be the converting factor and power of the Holy Spirit in the lives of men. Because out of the heart flows rivers of living water. The Spirit will flow from the heart if the heart is filled with the Word. But the Spirit always uses the Word in everything that He does in our sanctification. He doesn't just instantaneously zap us. It would be nice, but He doesn't work that way. It's the washing of the water by the Word that cleanses the church. It is by the Word that Reformation will take place. And it is only by the Word that we will affect the church our work, our family, our homes, everything that we do in true biblical reformation only by the word of God. Might we remember that as we've seen all of these different areas and all of these different places and all of these different circumstances that God would have us reform ourselves and those around us without keeping our hearts safe, without keeping them under lock and key, without guarding them we will lose the reformation that we have even gained very quickly. Let's pray together. Lord, that we might take a lesson from Proverbs, that we might keep our heart with all diligence, that we might keep our heart with all keeping as a prisoner is locked in a dungeon, or a prisoner is locked in maximum security, that we would be those guards over our hearts in the same way. Help us, Lord, that we might please you, that we might not let our hearts wander, that we might keep our hearts, for out of our hearts our entire life comes. What path will we walk? Where will we go? What will we see? What will we say? Let Proverbs, O oh Lord, fall deep in our heart, that not only might we redeem the time, but that we would do it with a guarded heart, that continually desires to be conformed after your image and your likeness, that we might be reminded who the Almighty God is and how he is always watching us and testing us and trying us to refine us, to see how well we actually are keeping our heart. We ask for your help in these things by the power of the Holy Spirit. And in Jesus' name, amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, 
containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.